Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes, brought to you by Harrells. This is your host, Jack Harrell III. Our Turf Dudes are reaching out to industry leaders and game changers to discuss what they're seeing out there. If you have a topic suggestion or know of a Turf Dude with an innovative work in the field we should feature, please let us know at turfdudes@heralds.com. In today's episode, recorded at the New England Regional Turfgrass Conference and Show, Dr. Jeff Atkinson and Dr. Ben McGraw, Associate Professor at Penn State University, talk about current trends and future management strategies for annual bluegrass weevils. Well, uh, welcome to another episode of Turf Dudes. I am your host today, uh, Dr. Jeff Atkinson. We're at the uh, live at the New England Regional Turfgrass Conference and Show. Um, so we have our guest today, Dr. Ben McGraw from Penn State University. Um, Thank you for your time. Hey, thanks today. for even, uh, allowing me to be on your show. It's awesome. Yeah, it's a it's a topic. Uh, what we're going to talk about today: annual bluegrass weevils yep. that we get uh, an increasing number of questions about, and right. I think that there's still some uh, a lot to learn about about the pest, and a lot right. to learn about control strategies, and a lot to learn um, about how cultural practices and uh, chemical practices all kind of blend in right. together for control perspectives. But before we get into all that, let's. Uh, Learn a little bit about yourself, um, Penn State professor. Yep. Tell me a little bit about uh, the Penn State Turf Program. Sure. Um, so, but then also your research program as well. Yeah, so I've been at Penn State since 2014. Uh, before that, I was uh, running the turf program at Delhi in New York, uh, SUNY Delhi. And that's where I know a lot of these Harold's people out here, like yep. Pete Salonetti and Fred Montgomery, John Keeler. So they were very influential in my early career. In 14, I uh, moved over to Penn State, and uh, I teach in our four-year program as well as our two-year certificate program there. So my job is 50% teaching, but also 50% research. So that's where we do uh, a lot of investigations into chemical, cultural, biological control of our yep. main turf grass pests. And as you mentioned, annual bluegrass weevil is a large part of that. How is the uh, two-year program and the four-year program? What are the differences in curriculum yeah, between so those two programs? The four-year program is like a traditional um, four-year turf grass degree program sure. like you'd have at most uh, land grants. Uh, the two-year certificate program is really, um, I think it's the one that people most associate with Penn State because it has the longest history. I think we were talking about it the other day. I think it's been around since 1957. Um, and that is different because they're in a compressed time frame. They, they basically have eight-week semesters instead of 15. So the students show up in October. Uh, they finish uh, in, or they show up in the beginning of October. They go right. eight weeks, so they're done in November. Some of them go work an internship during that Christmas break. Uh, but they come Thank back you. in January. Thank you and uh, do eight weeks and then they just graduate. You know, the, the seniors of the two-year program just graduated. So they're on an internship for a very long period of time. So that's highly advantageous. Um, yeah, but they're both great programs. We also have online. So I failed to mention that too. I do a lot of the online instruction too, which is a really interesting. We've got, every, you know, two-year yep. associates, bachelors, masters of professional studies. So we have a lot wow. of options there as well. So a lot of students online, it's really cool coming to yeah. events like this and people who I haven't seen face to face come up and talk to me and we talk, yeah. you know, and you, you recognize a, the name. And you guys have a great internship program as well. It seems you put yeah, you guys so, in some really right. great properties. So all those programs would have internship requirements. Um, and yeah, the, uh, it's what really makes this industry go around. Yeah, We just absolutely. need more students and more interns out there in the yeah, world. Yeah, well, I think that's a common belief no yeah. matter what the program is. Yeah, nowadays. without a doubt. But having all those options that you have online, 
Yeah. I think three we're, or four we're, years. We're, we'll, you know, we've got a diverse portfolio if you think about programs that way. So we're well suited to um, kind of be adaptable to the changing needs. So I think that's a big plus for Penn State. But yeah, we need uh, more students at other programs. We're doing really well with enrollments right now, but I know that there are some, you know, some of the traditional programs are, are definitely hurting. And, uh, you yeah. know, as much as I would want a student to come to Penn State, uh, we also need people in those other programs as well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, let's talk about annual bluegrass weevils. Yeah, so how did you get into that avenue of research to start out with? Yeah, so I did um, my PhD at Rutgers. Um, interestingly, I did a, if I can back up, I did a my bachelor's at, at the University of Maine, so I'm from Maine. Uh, I worked in agrochemical companies in California and Indiana for five years oh, after wow. college. Uh, then I did a master's at UMass with Pat Vidum, who's the really the godmother of weevils, but yeah. I didn't work at Weevil Project with her. I didn't start working on annual bluegrass weevil until my PhD studies okay. at Rutgers. Uh, so I've been working on it since uh, 2005. Um, it's changed a lot. Uh, the evolution of the pest in that period uh, is really unique. So like when you said, we're going to learn about all these things. Like I was just thinking to myself in that introduction, like, that's basically what we're doing every year. We're trying to figure out these things. It's really an interesting problem. I'd say it's, you know, I, I give a percentage. I'd say probably 80% of what we do in the lab is around that one pest, just wow. because there's so much need. Uh, it's really difficult to manage. You know, pesticide resistance is a big issue. And we have limited control options. So that's where my interest in biological controls, cultural controls come in. But. You know, I mean, we're still learning very basic things about its biology, which is crazy. Yeah. You have something that's so devastating that you would think we'd know everything about it. But, uh, you know, a lot of what we do in research is based on funding, and it's yeah. not a whole lot of funding to do some really basic research that way. So it's intensely managed with chemicals, and because of that, and for the most part, chemicals work really well for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And yep. that kind of replaces the need to find out a lot about the nuances, not until you have problems, which we're seeing now. So sure. it's kind of like going back and doing those initial steps. So a little bit about the biology of what we know about the yeah. biology or what you know about the biology at least of it. It's it's not a uh, white grub issue where we know have a pretty known life cycle and we can make applications on yeah. in May or June and right. get control. Uh, what are some of the nuances of the life cycle of annual bluegrass? Well, labels? I'd say the, the big difference is the number of generations per year that it would have. So that would be different from white grubs, where our white grubs are pretty much annual in nature. They complete their life cycle, you know, egg to adult, in about 11 months. Uh, what is interesting about this insect is it will come out of overwintering as an adult, and that will be the only stage present at that time. Once they stop dropping eggs and proceed into the summertime generations, then it's just a mix of stages. And so that yeah. makes it really hard to control with any product. If you could make a magic insecticide that controlled one stage really well, 100% right. control, and you applied it in the summertime, you've got all these stages like eggs, which we don't have any products that control eggs, and the pupa stage is well protected. Mm -hmm. So even in the summertime, if you had that magic pesticide that gave you 100% control of the larvae, you have all these other stages present that aren't susceptible to control. Right. So it's very, very challenging that way. Whereas white grubs, you know, they're pretty much all the same stage at the same time. It's much easier to go after something like that. It's also mobile, so the adults are moving around, displacing eggs all over the place. So that makes it a challenge as well. So what? We'll come back to some more of yeah, the yeah. chemical control options. But from you're talking about moving around and, and host, you know, annual bluegrass yep. weevil. But are other species susceptible to damage as well? 
Yeah, so creeping bentgrass, they'll do very well in it. And that was one of the things when I started at Penn State. So, you know, I'm progressively moving south. Uh, so, you know, in the New York metropolitan area where it cut my teeth on this insect, it, you see it, it almost looks like selective removal of manual bluegrass in a, in a mixed stand. But, you know, from the studies I did in my PhD, we, you know, we looked at the spatial arrangement of populations and they're in the bentgrass. Yeah. It's just bentgrass doesn't show the damage as readily as Poa does. Right. As we wow. move south, and as I've moved into this role at Penn State, what I see in the populations on the fringe, you know, as they move west and south, probably that prevalence of poa annua is just less. And so it's forced to feed on these other things. And, and so we see it readily except bent grass, especially in places like Maryland, Virginia, and western PA. Uh, it's a different type of damage. It's very similar to anthracnose in that way. So anthracnose on poa, very devastating. Sure. On bent grass, it will ding it up, but it's a little superficial. And uh, what is your PhD in? Weed science. Weed science. All right. So now I'm, you, yeah. you, from the poa standpoint, you know yeah. exactly what we're talking about. Yep. So, uh, you know, it's like this kind of superficial damage on bent grass. Yep. Uh, so, the, you know, the studies that we did at Rutgers in the mid-2000s, I guess now, I'm dating myself. Yep. Uh, we would see really almost like a tenfold increase in larvae would be required to see damage. Whereas wow. at POA, if it's a pure stand, you could have very few that sure. cause it. So it's a tough one. But it is something to be aware of if Absolutely. you are managing bentgrass. Yeah. So there is also, uh, you know, so creeping bentgrass, annual bluegrass, and those are the dominant species in the area where it's distributed. Sure. Um, there is some reports of perennial rye grass. I've never seen it, but um, some colleagues have mentioned that they'll develop in perennial rye. So it's really th those two main turf grasses that they're going to be problematic. So talking about geographic distribution or range, mm -hmm. uh, I guess where, where did the problem begin and kind of where is it yeah, now? So if you look at the literature, and you go... <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the problems with the live recording, I guess. <laughs> So if you look in the literature, and you know what going back to the literature in the 1930s looks like, you know, it's yeah. like that would have been the golden era to be a university researcher. You crank out a paper, just notes yep. and observations, that was probably good enough for your tenure back Yeah. So it's very, like, this, this, this publication from the 30s is, like, pretty poorly <laughs> described, you know? It's like a small beetle is causing oh, yeah. damage in Connecticut. Yeah, you got to love the style yeah. of writing of that era. It's just... <laughs> Yeah. Completely different than what it is today. Yeah, and when you get peer reviewed today, it's like personal attack. Oh, like, no, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> so, people want to, the yeah. grammar police are the right. worst on uh, yeah, the peer totally. review process. So it's probably like you, you hand wrote your notes yep. and you gave it to your administrative assistant and she typed it up. <laughs> and like, now it's, it's way different, which oh, is better. Man. I mean, science is evolving. Yeah. But, yep. So yep. The, my point is that paper in the 30s is really unclear if they're talking about annual bluegrass weevil, okay. damaging turf. What we do know absolutely for sure uh, is that from museum collections that are uh, at the Smithsonian, where they identified the insect in 1957 in Long Island. And it was really wow. in that yeah. metropolitan New York area for a very long time. Any it's idea where it came be, from? Well, initially? this is a thing. So it, spread, it has spread out very slowly. And we know mm -hmm. they don't, I, I've never seen one fly. My colleagues will talk, <laughs> I always saw them flying in the lab, or they hit me in the face out in the field. I've never seen never one fly. Never seen it happen. Very rarely do they even open their wings. Yeah. Beetles aren't necessarily great flyers, so they move around primarily by walking, and there's some physiological things that cause that. However, their spread has been slow, and it's been radially spreading like a fungus on a petri dish, like yeah. moving outwards. Yeah. And out, that out, would, out. to me, yeah. that looks like what an invasive insect would do. So that slow distribution because they don't fly great fly. distances. 
however, it's believed to be a native insect. So if you look at museum collections, they're in places like British Columbia, they're in California, they're wow. in Mexico in the high desert. You can go online on some of these collections, you can see the actual location if the collector had, has, that, has that, you can get the geographic coordinates. And you see places like Nevada, like out in the desert, you know, there's a little really? green vegetation. But if you look at the pattern about where you see damage on golf course, you think about it. These insects have probably been around for millennia, mm -hmm. right? Golf courses have been around since the late 1800s in this country. Yeah, sure. So they must have been doing something before. The group is the semi-aquatic. So they are, I would imagine that they were in wetlands. And what I would hypothesize is if this is a native insect, and it's moving like an invasive and spreading out, it's probably evolved. You know, what we're probably seeing is a speciation event where it's wow. split and it's become something else. It's learned how to feed on a new host plant. And from that, then that, uh, you know, I'm not a taxonomist or yeah. working well, systematic, but I don't know what that would be speciation, called. that's a whole yeah. other, right, right. A whole so, other rabbit hole to go down. Yeah, so, I mean, we just might be watching it in our lifetimes. Um, something that takes millennia to happen normally. But if we're putting that selection pressure on it, you're providing it a food and it, right. it's a lot of them, right. and maybe that would explain the slow spread. We also, you know, we know from California, from just being out there and playing great golf courses, 100% POA in some of these places, yeah. you know? The food and if it, if it was, if it were talking about the same insect from these museum collections, why wouldn't it damage turf out there? Why wouldn't it be a big problem? So the fact that we see it slowly spread out year, new reports, are kind of at the fringe of it. Uh, we did get a report in 2017 of it showing up in, from sod yeah, that was purchased in New Jersey that was sent to Arkansas. So that oh, kind of wow. jumped the distribution. Sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, last yeah. year I de identified uh, a sample for someone in Kentucky too. So those were two new state reports that, and that's, those were kind of mm -hmm. blips on the radar because they showed up outside of that normal slow distribution spread right. outward. So. And, and it's something that we hypothesize would be happening is that if we're growing large amounts of bent grass and they can do very well on yeah. sod farms, they'll show up on sod farms and then we're gonna distribute them, so. Are there any state level control measures for the distribution of, of sod in areas that have? Uh, you know, that's, I don't know for sure, but it, you know, it's something that we were really interested in working in a, a few years ago. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we didn't get out ahead of that one or didn't get research projects in place to look at those things. It'd be a very tough thing if you're growing 150 acres of bent grass. Yep. What are you going to use for controls? It's a large amount of turf that you have to treat. And the nature of the sod game is very different from you know, other yeah. turf. You know, it's yep. a commodity that they're trying to crank it out as fast as they can with the fewest inputs. Yep. And so if we now have this pest that we could be moving around, I, I wouldn't be concerned if I was within the distribution. But I probably wouldn't be buying sod from within the distribution, shipping it out Outside for just that problem, just that problem of moving yep. it there. So, well, how about control options? So, uh, you say chemical control options. Yep. We briefly mentioned those earlier. That they're somewhat, I'll say, limited, but depending on what life stage they right. are in. And Absolutely. So, you're a weed scientist. You have a whole buffet of things to choose from. With insecticides, yep. we're pretty limited. I mean, if you look at just the number of classes, so. Um, you know, we have some contacts that work against the adults until we overuse them, and that's a, the case with the pyrethroids. So about after 10 years, 15 years of using pyrethroids, which were very effective, very cheap, yeah, yeah. Uh, we started very to see some decrease in susceptibility um, to those products, as you would imagine. So with the adulticides, we really only have like two classes that we can rotate between. 
if you have resistance yep. to one of them, then you're down to one. And then the other one, uh, the resistance. organophosphate, we uh, don't see the same level of control. It can be a very effective product, but um, my concern there is really uh, a lot of municipalities or state level or even province level in like Canada, th those products sure. are probably going to go away because yeah. of okay. their mammalian toxicity issues. So if that happens, we could be really in a bad spot. So now uh, you have... So that's the adulticide. So one we, adulticide yeah. that already has resistance issues. You lose mm -hmm. the organophosphates and then there's nothing else out there right. that can give right. you that adulticide activity. Yeah, so that's so what a lot of... rotation's not existing yeah. at that point. A lot of what we do is try to find alternatives to that, you know, uh, biorational products and stuff. We've got some uh, USGA-funded projects going on right now to look for those alternatives, but... We need, you know, and that's sort of, you coming to the yeah. event like this and giving a seminar on weevils, it's like, you know, in that four hours, you do a little bit of daydreaming, like, what are the weaknesses in, in our Absolutely. control strategy? That's a really important one to control the adults, in my opinion, but it's also an area where we, we need some solutions. We need to be forward thinking in what we're doing at my level, not the superintendent level, but at my level, like, what if we were to lose these things? Because I do think that's probably coming down the pipeline with a lot of these older chemistries. So from those... Can we get a question on, uh, on control? Okay. Sure. Dr. McGraw, Chuck Bramhall with Hi, Chuck. Thanks How are for you? coming. No, Good, thank you. Good. I cover Cape Cod in the yeah. uh, Boston area. Oh, I know who you are. You're yep. a big wheel in the, <laughs> the cheese factory. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, we've heard recently that there's some efficacy with the... Um, uh, Civitas. Yep. In drowning them. Can you comment on that? Yeah, so that's uh, <laughs> that's the research project that I alluded to that's uh, USGA funded. So um, Steve Alm at the University of Rhode Island, Albert Kropenhofer at uh, Rutgers, and then my lab. Uh, I think my lab being the best of those three. Uh, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> we, we've been looking at uh, this for uh, a couple of years now. It was interesting because I had looked at Civitas, uh, which is a, basically an oil, and Steve at Rhode Island independently was looking at um, some older wedding agents. And what we were independently working on when we came together and talked about these things, I said, hey, I'm working on this. He said, I I'm working on this. And I said, I think these things are probably working the same way. And then we kind of teamed up and added Albrecht into the mix. Um, even though oils and essentially soaps work differently and have been used on like soft-bodied insects and nurseries and stuff like that by breaking down their cuticle or maybe blocking their breathing apparatus on their sides and suffocates them. These products seem to be working a little bit differently. When we have high moisture conditions and we apply either of them, we can see these products kill the insect very, very quickly. And a beetle, a beetle is a, a, an adult beetle is a really difficult thing to control. You know, if you look out in the world. Yeah, we're, I mean, you don't, Japanese beetle for one, we are all familiar with here in New England. You're not, you don't see people going after the adults and spraying because it's a very difficult thing to control. So these products, what we see in lab petri dishes, in greenhouse pot studies, if we apply this and we hit it with a high carrier volume or we provide it with a moist environment, it will smoke them really quickly. When we go to the field, there's an added layer of complexity there. And we're really still trying to fine tune that in the field about how we can make it work. You know, with some of the wetting agents that we used initially, these are older ones uh, that we knew had insecticidal activity. Uh, and so that's where we started. However, these are some older surfactants that people are not really using in the turf industry anymore. 
and we do have some phytotoxicity issues right. with them. So we've kind of taken a step back. I mean, it would be great to kill them, but if you're killing turf at the same time, it's... it's so I, I feel, and I, I've told this story quite a few times this week here, I feel like with this project, there's such a big upswing because these products are, you know, they're basically breaking down surface tension, allowing water to rush into the body. And we can see this easily with Civitas with the green dye. And you can just see it where it's moving in through their breathing apparatus, and what we think is happening is they're basically drowning from within. Uh, there's, I would say there's no chance, maybe I should cover my butt a little bit, there's a highly unlikely that you would develop resistance to that. Maybe you could select for behavioral resistance where they change their patterns or they don't feed on the turf where we're spraying, but uh, it is highly unlikely that you would ever develop resistance to this type that's of mode of action. So I wouldn't care if you did that every week. Right, that's right. And so if you're getting little chunks mm -hmm. of that adult population with these products that are going to break down pretty rapidly in the environment, that's the other thing. These are contacts. If, if we spray it, and we've done tons of these trials too, if we spray the turf and then put them on it, nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, if you spray the turf and you feed it to them, nothing. It's really, it's, it works as a true contact. That insect has to be there, and we have to have a lot of conditions met, like high moisture, high carrier volume. Excellent. So two gallons or more per thousand, three uh, gallons? Yeah, so we looked at one to four, and I was thinking four was going to be better because that's everything that we see in the, in the lab is the more water, the better. And, and I'd probably be chased out of the convention center if I said you had to go put something out at four gallons per thousand. You, you know, spray fairways at four gallons per thousand. <laughs> Ironically, everything that we suspected would make this pro the, those products work better in the field this year, the opposite was true. So we looked at carrier volume and we looked at irrigation after application. Those are the two ways that I think you could really easily jack the moisture up in the system. And one gallon per thousand carrier was better. What we first did is we irrigated the soils. These are you know, fine, you know, fine textured soil. Put the TDR in, we probably had 45 to 47% volumetric water content. So, you know, it was saturated to begin with. And then we applied these products and then we, we use the soap to irritate the adults out and count live for, and then we compare it to the controls. And pretty much everything that we suspected would work, high carrier volume or irrigating a lot after application, they were all the worst performance. And I don't know if it was just the fact, I mean, this year was so wet, did we have too much moisture in the system? Are we diluting these things too much with those conditions? That's the only thing that I can think of because everything that we suspected turned out not to be the case. So I think there's a huge upswing to working on this. It's a big priority in our lab, but it's difficult to go from Petri dish to greenhouse to that final step in the field. And I feel like we're making two steps forward, one step back. Or maybe even one step forward and two steps. Maybe we're going backwards every year. So, you know, I think it's going to take a couple more years of that kind of fine-tuning. Um, but the upside is pretty big, especially when we don't have really good adult alternatives. And I, and I personally feel that that's the most critical stage to control. A lot of my colleagues will say, just get away from that. We can't least, do that. And at least by using the Civitas, there's other benefits too. So yeah, it's not like you're right, right. Money so, and I don't, know if, I don't know if you would get those benefits with the way that we're using the products too. You know, we're not activating plant defenses or anything like that. We're just trying to kill these things. Right. So, you know.
Well, thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Excellent. Sorry for the long-winded answer. <laughs> we have another question. Uh, hey, guys. I'm Jim Favor with, uh, with Harrell's, um, Massachusetts. Dr. McGraw, how are you? Good. Great how are to you have, doing? Great to have you. Thanks, uh, I have Thanks two, for being here. I have two questions. Let me ask the important one first. So, sure. Uh, uh, Treehouse is my favorite beer company. What, oh, yeah? What's yours? <laughs> Uh, whatever I'm making at my house. Oh, well, you have to invite me over for one uh, of those. No, I, I'm, I'm partial to the West Coast. So I grew up in Maine, and I see Bob, my buddy Bob, from Maine back there. Uh, it's interesting, because Maine is like a real, it's got like the, the English kind of beer style kind of ingrained in that. And uh, that's what I grew up on, but now I, I can't stomach it, except for the new stuff that's come into Maine, like Maine Beer Company. That's So Maine Beer Company, and I'll pick one on the West Coast, because I'm more of a West Coast beer fan. So Ballast Point. I oh, think very good. Yeah. Ballast Point, Maine Beer Company. If those are the two breweries I could drink the rest of my life, I'd be fine. <laughs> You'd be all right Well, what are you brewing at home today? Uh, so I made beer before I came here, so hopefully everything's okay back at home and temperature in the basement didn't go up to 80 degrees while I'm gone but uh and then have some really nasty beer I usually I gotta say uh my wife expects to have an IPA on draft so we have kegs so we always had drafts so I try to have four kegs going at all times in our chest freezer but she insists on having an IPA all the time so that gets me in a rut because with my job it's like feast or famine making beer (laughs) And so it's, I feel like I'm just making IPAs all the time, which is fine. Yeah. I like drinking IPAs, but I'm an artist. I want to create, you know? And if I'm just making IPAs all the time, I'm not advancing, so. You're not exploring. Exactly, so. Well, Jimmy, you actually had a real question. Yeah, so, so. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. No, 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 I'm, I'm perfectly fine talking about beer, actually, but um, get back to business stuff. Yeah, no so, problem. So, uh, ABW Adult Timing. Obviously, they're most active, you know, when the sun's up, and yep. they seem to be walking right. around on surfaces. Is there any models that superintendents could use wow. to make those applications? Are these, it, these are like hidden questions to talk about. You, you've embedded people in the audience. I did. We actually did these studies. These. So my former master's student, uh, Ben Suzuki, who's got my old job at Delhi now, um, when he was at Penn State, what we were most interested in is cultural management of the insect. Are we removing them through mowing? Because we rarely ever see them damage greens. And in fact, the only time that I've seen them damage greens is when we're mowing at a high height of cut, like 140, 150, you know, the mom and pop place. Uh, so we had this idea that they would be removed. And, and we did see that with uh, mowing at a tenth of an inch was our lowest treatment that we looked at. And that's bench setting, not actual setting, but at a bench setting of one tenth of an inch, we were moving about um, 30 to 40% of the adults in a single event. And if we double cut, we could jack that up a little bit. Uh, so that's every day you're removing that amount, and that's why we thought that um, we didn't see damage in the green. So that's great. I'm, I'm happy with that removal, but we wanted to see if we could increase that. And the way that we went about doing that is could we figure out when they're active on top of the canopy, thinking that if they're more active on top of the canopy, then you'd come through and you'd just be that much more effective in removing them. So there's a lot of weevil species that are uh, nocturnal, so what I was thinking when we initially, which is in hindsight, the dumbest thing ever. It's amazing I have a job at a university. It really is. Because what do we know about insects? They're cold-blooded. I, I give this talk every year. Like, we forget the simple things in spring that they're cold-blooded. They're only going to be as active as the temperature allows. So when are they active? April, May. It's pretty cold at night. They're not moving. 
So what we did is we uh, we had a fluorescent marking system and developed this camera filter system where we could capture them with a mark. So this we'd take a Sharpie, a neon Sharpie, and mark them. And with this special camera, it would fluoresce. So you take a picture, and you could see when they're on top of the canopy. And if they were down in the canopy, they wouldn't fluoresce. And so we had, well, I say we, but my graduate students <laughs> had to take these photos every hour for 24 hours and three months. So it would be a big lab process where I didn't, but uh, they did. And what he saw is it was very tightly correlated with temperature early in the season. So when they're moving in April and May, um, you know, those temperatures are, uh, you know, around 50, like during the day maybe. And, and that seems to be the threshold that we see in the field as well. If I'm sampling for adults, if it's cold, I'm not as effective in sampling. So we saw that real tight correlation. Uh, we developed a model because at the high end too, once it gets too warm, then that's also uh, not, they, they kind of get out of the sunlight. So it's this kind of this uh, dome-shaped response and we saw maximum activity between uh, 57 and 64 degrees. So you think about when that is when they're moving in the springtime, uh, that's probably one to three o'clock in the afternoon. And we do see that if you walk across greens, not that, you know, they're probably moving through and we're moving them. Uh, they can develop in greens. I don't want people to, to go away with that message that they're not going to damage greens, but what, you see that. You see that. You see them scurrying over, over the surfaces at those, when it's warm. So it makes sense. They're cold-blooded organisms. They're going to... Great question. Yeah, great question. We've got one more here. Yeah, Jim Wurzbicki from uh, Connecticut. Hey. So, with your research on the um, on the civitas and these oils, um, yeah. have you looked at or are you considering um, any synergistic uh, potential? Like, for instance, if a customer or a golf course superintendent can only apply one or only wants to apply once or twice with a with a pyrethroid. Yeah. The, a tank mix. So, if you're, you know, is there any kind of synergy potential? That, in, you know, that's really interesting that uh, you say that because, and, and I'm not just saying Civitas, I'll speak broadly about oils. Uh, there are many published reports of synergies with oils and pyrethroids, of all things, where you can restore susceptibility in these other agricultural, not in turf, but uh, it's been done in many ag crops where you have pyrethroid resistance and adding an oil uh, seems to help it in certain cases. So some insects can develop resistance by really changing their cuticle. Like their cuticle is, is evolved to be different. We've selected for these different morphologies, if you will. And by applying an oil with a pyrethroid in those documented cases, it, it's almost like it helps it get into their body better. And so there could possibly be that. Uh, I don't know, I mean, we don't have I guess you could look at a susceptible population or resistant population, see if those are different at the cuticle level. But um, that would be one example. Because my thought was um, with the whole resistance yeah. and people trying to get away from it, um, I don't know, maybe resistance is resistance. And yeah. if there was that potential, if customers could cut the rate in half of the pyrethroid yeah. and uh, enhance it in some way. Yeah, I mean, just restoring it would be good enough I mean for me I don't know you know if you could if there was that synergistic effect that would be really interesting we know very little about resistance don't let my colleagues tell you that we figured this out and I don't think that every population is the same we don't see great mixing of populations and so when a 
turf entomologist says this is what it is, I have a hard time believing that because my populations in Pittsburgh might not even be interacting with the population across the river, much less across the street. So to say it's, this is one shade of resistance development, we know there's many modes of resistance development. It could be a mutation in one population, could be enzyme activity in another population, could be behavioral. There's lots of ways that insects can become resistant. I think that story is yet to be told. I have a PhD student right now looking at the gut microbiome. And so what we did is we took a population, and this was a critique that he had in his proposal, is we can't just look at all these populations because they're different. What you need to have is a golf course where you have different insecticide management plans on that golf course. So what did we do? We went to Beth Page. They have five golf courses that all touch each other. They all have different chemical loads going into them. The black championship golf course, historically, they went hard after the weevil, which is right next to the green, which was the course that they tried to maintain organically. Those fairways touch. And when we collected populations and tested their resistance levels, it was night and day. Very, very wow. different. So we went back with Garrett, my PhD student, and he started looking at their gut microbiome. And the populations separate out just in identical to their management intensity. So blue and the yellow are very closely related. The red and the black, the higher intensity insecticide loads, they look similar gut contents. And then you have the green, which is a big outlier there. So there's lots of evidence that's just coming out now, this new field of resistance management that's looking at the gut microbiome and saying that these bacteria that they harbor can detoxify enzymes. So now if we know that, maybe we can go in with an antibiotic and knock out those bacteria and maintain, restore susceptibility to pyrethroid. So. Yeah, so uh, at, at Bethpage, they, I believe they have five courses. The Black is a championship course, which hosts USO. They're going to have the PGA in May. Uh, so that would be the, the most intense. You know, not, it's not unusually an intense, but because of the pressures that they had on maintaining tournament conditions, you know, a little bit more intense with their chemical insecticides historically. They backed way off. Uh, the, the red is uh, another 18-hole course that they have there that I would say would be the next step down in management intensity as well as chemical intensity. Uh, the blue and yellow are fairly comparable, uh, kind of moderate um, management of, with insecticides. And then the green is really kind of their uh, case study, if you will, of how minimal inputs we can place into uh, a golf course from an insecticide load. So. Great staff there, they have lots of resources. They worked with Cornell for many decades. It's a really great staff to work with, absolutely. That's a really unique blend of... Yeah, it was really, you know, and it was important for us to do that at a place where you had that. It's such a unique thing, and we're gonna go back out this spring, but from that, now we can start to, now that we've shown it on the small scale that scientists would want to have us prove in our peer-reviewed paper, now we can sure. take it out in a bigger geographic area and then see things like, as these populations move south and feed on bentgrass, how does that change their gut content? So, you know, like, your gut content is gonna be very different from mine. Mine's probably sterile from drinking all this week, <laughs> but yours is probably healthy. You probably eat quinoa and stuff like uh, that. Yeah, you're a lot of quinoa, big quinoa guy. Big yeah. quinoa guy. So your gut content's probably awesome. How you respond to something, 
is probably going to be different for yeah, me, sure. you know, right? So and the insects are no different. Yeah, and it, it's kind of an emerging field about looking at the bacteria to see, That's like, really do they though. have their, are they the ones that are controlling? I mean, the, the gut microbiome in humans is just fascinating and stuff that we're finding out that that desire to grab that Twinkie is being driven by bacteria in your gut. Like you're unconsciously doing these things and really we're just at yeah. the mercy yeah. of these microbes in our guts. So well, I think we can have a whole conversation about totally. microbiomes and guts and, and soil and their influences on plants. That's a whole field that we're just uh, yeah, scratching we're the surface. Yeah, we're totally on. just scratching the surface, really, Absolutely. without a doubt. Well, one last question that I have, at least related right. to annual bluegrass weevils. If I'm a superintendent, I think that I have uh, maybe a population a problem starting to emerge. You know, how do I scout? What signs do I look for? Yeah, so there's a bunch of things that are available. Some obviously require more efforts than others. And, you know, really being on the ball in the springtime is is key. Unfortunately, that's also in cool season turf. It's like going like gangbusters and you're just trying to keep up with mowing. And Sure. Uh, but uh, the adult stage would be the first stage that you could look for um, throughout the year. That's done by a variety of means. Um, we use plan indicators. So I'm going to, from the least amount of effort to the most amount of effort, is we do have some phenological indicators that we can time insecticides with, or they're correlated to activity. So forsythia full bloom, they're usually on the march from the woods, that's when it starts, and that plant is half green, half gold. That's usually when they've all emerged from their overwintering sites and they're on short turf areas. They're attracted to short turf, so. Okay. Uh, so those, that's the simplest thing that you can do is just look at plants, very apparent plant. Um, stuff that we do we do a disclosing solution or soap irritant solution that you can pour on the turf and have adults come up you could check baskets um, my problem with checking baskets in the springtime after you mow greens you know you can find them you get a lot of them but you also get a lot of debris so uh, that data is kind of all over the place sure. we use a vacuum leaf blower um, to collect the adults that's a very simple way to do but you have to have you know, two to three hundred dollar vacuum leaf blower with a nozzle, but it's very instantaneous. You know, I can take it on a green, I can take it anywhere without damaging the turf. So that's what we kind of prefer. But not too many superintendents yeah. are out Have there. There are there are some good okay. you know people who are really intense with their scouting. Yeah. But so that would be for adults. Uh, we follow that up with scouting for larvae, and that's a little bit more difficult. Yeah, I mean, you need to do some destructive sampling, pull cores, take a jackknife triangle out of the turf. Sure. Early on, they're really small, and I wouldn't see them without um, the use of a magnifying lens or a microscope. So that can often be overlooked. When they are later larvae, you can see them readily with the naked eye. But usually okay. at that point, you know, damage is probably a little bit apparent. So we want to catch them early, looking for your adults. What's Definitely the symptomology on damage on turf? Uh, so it's there? interesting, you know, it, you, it's a crown feeder, uh, so it's going to damage the crown by chewing, and, and it can first really initially, I think it really resembles anthracnose initially, a little bit of yellowing, yeah. a little chlorosis, yeah. and then it might go orange, brown, and then brown, and then dead. It sounds uh, like it'll show up earlier in the season versus what anthracnose yeah, would traditionally right, show up. Right, right, exactly. Um, but, you know, if you've got POA and, you know, a lot of people have chased it with a fungicide only to find out it's not anthracnose. So it, it looks very similar to that. Um, it's odd, though, as well. Sometimes we, we don't see damage. You can have tons of numbers in there and it might be a little bit moist. It seems like a big issue in low-lying areas. You often see these huge pockets of weevil larvae feeding 
but that stand never collapses. And I can't figure that one out because it's a crown feeder. It's going to drop the stand. Yeah. There's no recovery from right. that. So. Right, right. Sounds like you still have a lot to learn about the biology control Absolutely. and everything Absolutely. in between about annual bluegrass weevils. Well, do we have any other questions from, from the group today? And if not, um, Pete's, Pete's got one last question for us. Yeah, about obviously you work with a lot of clubs. Yep. All kinds of budgets, yep. resources, yada, yada, yada. Uh, I'm in upstate New York. Uh, not a lot of guys I work with have a whole lot of money. Yeah. If you were going to develop an economical protocol, yeah. Where would you start? Wow, that's a great one. So, like Pete mentions, you know, a lot of uh, we we did a survey in 2017 and looked at budgets, and people are all over the board in the region for budgets. And the average club, this is from all of them, mom and pop to high end, the average that they were spending on this insect in 2016 was $9,200 a year. That's a lot of money for one insect. Um, I think there's a couple of ways that you could approach it. If you're just doing economical approach, you'd probably be selecting harsher, older chemistries that kill on contact. Adults are easy to, not easy to control, but they're cheap to control. And that's why we're in the problems that we're in, because we've taken an economical standpoint. I think it's one of the things um, you can't really skimp, you know? Uh, it's a tough one, because our two most effective larvicides are the two most expensive ones. Uh, and they're great products, they really are. Uh, I just don't think that it's something, because of the nature of the damage and where it damages the turf, uh, you really can't skimp. But you and I know we have a friend in Gilderland who does really um, the things that I would be doing to cut budgets, not spraying wall to wall, really prioritizing what areas of the turf you need to spray. And what he does is he sprays from like the 150 in, if you think about it, some of these landing zones, maybe you can take a pounding. Um, you know, incorporating bent grass in there might help you with your, your safety net. Um, but I, the way that I would make it economical is really tighten up my scouting and make as few applications as I can. A well-timed adulticide and followed up with a larvicide is usually the best approach. Um, I would try to find a way to get those good products because they're very effective. Um, there are also really effective products that we don't really typically think about anymore because they're overshadowed by those other products. But there are things that you can incorporate. I love Provon. I, I mean, Provon always looks great in our trials, but it's overshadowed by Matchpoint and Ferrance because those are really effective products. So, and you, uh, we should be rotating those as well. So. Um, you know, really targeting the area, keeping a big refuge so that you maintain susceptibility in your population. But really, do we need to treat all areas of turf? I went, every year people ask me, what about banding? Can I just ban fairways? And I've seen banding fail as many times as I see it work. Um, we don't think they're flying, but sometimes it seems like they hop over that band and you'll have damage in the center of the fairway, which I can't really explain because I don't, I don't see them flying around ever. And we know in springtime their muscles are depleted, so they're not capable of really flying. So I wish I could say, yes, band them. I mean, everything we know about how this insect moves and where it, a disproportionate amount of eggs are placed on the edges, you would think that banding would be a way that you could reduce those expenses. But uh, for some people, you know, maybe it is working. Um, but I would think about really, do I need to treat all these areas? Really the biggest savings, um, well, it's really easy if people tell me they're treating roughs. 
because I can save you about 50 acres of insecticide spray right there. That, that should not be a target. Um, but do we need to treat every square inch of every fairway? I think if you have a good superintendent, they know exactly where their weevil populations are. Some people have weevils all across their property, but when we go to collect, it's usually five or six places on an 18-hole golf course where we collect from. Do I need to treat every area every year? Um, yeah, you know, that's an interesting thing that I think about. Like we show in our trials, we'll get 90% control or 100% control. Well, if we were getting 100% control, then it wouldn't be a problem next year or next generation. Like where they come from on these places where we're treating wall to wall and getting really good kill, I don't know. I mean, it's like they just come right back up to that level again the following year. Um, so there have been a couple of places where we've seen, where we've done long-term studies, where I know those populations, and over time we've just pretty much eliminated them from an area, and that was at a low-budget golf course in New Jersey where they let them feed, they destroyed that, all that poe in there, they seeded it with perennial rye, and that's why I said I'm surprised that my colleagues mentioned that they will feed on rye, um, because that, that seemed to be a very effective strategy. I hate ryegrass in the fairways, though. So then you got to contend with a difficult turf grass to cut, shearing the blade. It's just damned if you do, damned if you don't. Well, as uh, I guess, how can our listeners, if they have questions, if they want to follow your research, follow um, your control strategies, anything? How can they? How can they find you? Get in touch. Yeah, with you? so um, we do. I do contribute to the Weevil Track blog that Syngenta puts out. Okay. Um, so we share our thoughts every month on that. Okay. Um, I'm on Twitter. You can email me. Yeah. Uh, Penn State Turfgrass has a website too. So there's lots of different ways. Yeah. To get the message get, out. Get the message out. Well, if there's any, not any more questions from the crowd. We appreciate your right, time. I, I certainly learned something today. Great. Uh, I certainly learned a lot today about awesome. you know, bluegrass weevils and just insect management in turf. Yeah. So thank you for your time. Yeah, no and, problem. Um, Thanks, guys. We appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Turf Dudes. To send Dr. Atkinson and the Herald's Turf Dudes team your questions or comments, or to be featured in an upcoming episode, reach out to us at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email to turfdudes at heralds.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play Music or tune in directly at www.turfdudes.com. Send us your questions to at Turf Dudes on Twitter or by email to turfdudes at heralds.com. Turf Dudes is spelled T-U-R-P-H-D-U-D-E-S.